Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to my various channels. I am doing a long stream discussion series on transition, detransition, sexuality, and gender, and all the different things that fall under the map of human reproduction and all the mechanisms that provide us impulses to reproduce. Today's guest is Laura who is an American, though she's currently studying in Eastern Europe uh, for some sort of professional degree. And uh, in this discussion, we speak about her experience um, discovering what it is to be a woman and wrestling with that and how wrestling with whatever it is that she perceived she should be as a woman sent her on a very long picaresque journey through Antifa circles and LGBT circles and a variety of different identities and uh, actions and political um, positions and where she ended up now with uh, a child and uh, detransitioning and uh, thinking through life and trying to discover what her place is in the world and trying to articulate her experience with a philosophical basis. This is a very adventurous discussion here. I know you guys are going to get a kick out of it. I know I did. And here's Laura. Where do I want to start? I mean, could we start with like the first inkling of gender dysphoria or like the first Okay, time? sure. Sure, let's go for that. Um, okay, I actually, I wanted to like have a bunch of notes and stuff to talk about, but I haven't had the time. Actually, I think my first tweet, I, I started tweeting like exactly a month ago and my first tweet was saying, I'm supposed to be studying for this um, psychology exam, but I, I can't stop reading all these things that other detransitioners read. And guess what? I failed my exam. So the very small amount of time that I have um, in the day to devote to intellectual pursuits um, and not to child care or self-care, I have been um, having to devote um, to studying so that I can pass the test on the second go-round. And um, so I haven't had a chance to prepare for our talk the way I'd hoped to. Uh, I want to have, like, little footnotes, you know, and stuff. You know, that would be cute, <laughs> like little footnotes on a toothpick. Like a little sign, <laughs> yeah, yeah. maybe, um, you know, maybe but I guess, maybe I guess, in the summer. you know, yeah, that would be actually that would be great if we're going to do this again uh, a year from now. I'll have two more semesters under my belt and I'll probably also be sleeping better because um, my son mm. will be older. So I might be able to mm. give a, a more um, convincing talk about some of the more theoretical aspects. I think now it's probably better if I stick mostly just to my own experience. So that's mm -hmm. what we're going to start with. And um, uh, so, yeah, so. Um, I'm 36. I was born in 1983. Um, that makes me um, pretty old. How old are you? Just so I can get an idea of like when you were experiencing various historical um, events and stuff. How old are you? Yeah, I'll be 44 th this year. Okay. Okay. So you're pretty old. Um, I'm uh, having to think about this a lot recently because now I'm suddenly interacting with all these people who are so much younger than me. And I'm realizing that you know, all of the things that were going on, you know, in my childhood, they didn't experience any of that. They weren't born yet. And um, then, you know, some of the, the things that were um, 
you know, uh, major events that shaped my young adulthood. Um, they were children during that. And then so much of what they've been dealing with over like the last few years has flown by me and without me even really noticing it, because that's the thing. Um, the older you get, the faster time seems to move. And, uh, that's one of the things that I wish I had known when I was um, in my late teens and I felt like, um, you know, every day that went by that I wasn't getting what I wanted was like an eternity. I mean, you know, um, is that, you know, in a few years, things would be moving so much faster. And, you know, fast forward then, you know, in, a, 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 you know, two decades. And now it's like, um, it's just a completely different experience of mm. reality. And, and that's a totally normal thing that happens to everyone. Um, but you don't know it until you experience it. But I also think we don't talk about that enough. And I think that's something mm. that might be helpful for young people who feel uh, really desperate to, to be aware of that. Um, just being aware of being um, a living thing and all the things that go along with that um, because a lot of what I experienced as dysphoria uh, was all um, stuff that was very temporary. And, um, you know, both in terms of uh, my uh, experience of things, you know, as a being, you know, like in what I was referring to with time seeming like it moves exponentially faster as you get older. Uh, and then also in terms of some of the negative things I was dealing with that were coming from the outside, like sexual harassment from adult men. I thought when I was in my um, early teens and even before, because it started when I was about 10, because I looked older. Um, so um, I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm excusing adult men who'd sexually harass a 16-year-old girl. I'm not. But when I was 12, people frequently mistook me for 16. So um, I was getting even more uh, I was I was drawing in an even larger group of perverts than uh, if I had looked 12. You know, there certainly would have been those perverts who who will sexually harass 12 year old girls. But I was also attracting the the perverts who think they're a little bit um, uh, less um, problematic because they stick to slightly older teenagers to harass. But I I was actually even younger and I just looked older and it was just such a nightmare. Um, and I thought that was permanent. That well, that's what I. I guess I want to say about it is I thought it was permanent. I thought that being female meant that I was going to be sexually harassed like that for the rest of my life. And what I realize now, and of course, hmm. it's possible that some of the reason that I don't get sexually harassed a lot is because my gender and sexuality um, is um, ambiguous to people. And maybe that um, has... Uh, resulted in in less harassment so i can't say it's just because of getting older but i think a lot of it is just getting older i mean i think um the amount of harassment that young girls receive for a, a relatively short period of time can have such a disproportionate impact on their sense of self and their development because um older women um you know they don't say you know this is temporary this is because these guys are pedophiles who um, don't know how to interact with women who are peers and they're going after you because you're young and vulnerable and um, this will stop in a few years when you're an adult and then they'll be afraid of you and they won't be harassing you. So um, no one says that, you know. Um, instead, you have older women who 
um, I guess, are jealous of the attention. And then you, you have older women who just pretend it's not happening, like my mother, because it's too difficult to, to deal with. And then you have, you know, older women, um, you know, like, unfortunately, some um, uh, feminists who have, you know, very strange um, takes on it, like, I guess, from like the liberal feminist perspective, you know, who would say that, oh, well, you can somehow empower yourself with your image or whatever, or then the radical feminist perspective of, um, you know, well, actually, this is going to be like this forever, because actually, that's what being female is. It's constant sexual harassment and rape till the day you die. And um, I read Andrea Dworkin when I was like 13. And it hmm. was horrible. I mean, it was really it was like violence porn. And it definitely made me much um, more afraid of um, being a woman, you know, it didn't help me. So I know a lot of people, you know, who I've been getting to know recently find a lot of strength and solace, or I don't really know what they find, but they really, they really like that stuff. But, um, for me, that wasn't helpful. What would have been helpful would be maybe, uh, if someone had told me, you know, this too shall pass, these guys are perverts and they, um, they know that you're too young to um, be able to uh, put this into context and that they can really scare you and that makes them feel powerful. But in a few years, you know, as soon as you're an adult, these guys will not be doing that anymore and, um, and you won't have to deal with it. So it's not permanent. But I didn't get that, unfortunately. So anyway, we were going to talk about when my dysphoria started. And it started before that. And that's um, an interesting point. I kind of like, I'm not sure... I feel like on the one hand, my personal experience is um, really powerful in a way, um, in a way that if I just try to like rattle off statistics, it wouldn't be. But on the other hand, it's like I almost feel conflicted about sharing too much personal stuff because I don't want it to just be like, you know, like a talk show, just all this, you know, horrible stuff. And then I also know that there's some young trans identified people who might be less likely to identify with my story and get something out of it when they are able to notice all the ways in which we're different instead of similar. Hmm. Um, but I don't know. You, you know, gotta, what? actually, you I have don't to like trust how this the audience. is going. Can we start over? We're going to have then a little, we're going to have, we'll have an hour. We'll have exactly an hour. Can we start over? Well, where are we starting? Let's just start over. From the beginning. Can we start over? We're going to start. Yeah, we're going to start over. Okay. Because I've been, like, off the hook. All right. Okay, let's start over. Okay, hey. Hey, Benjamin. Hey, Laura. How you doing? Hey, I'm okay. Um, so, I've got my camera set up. Where do we want to start? <laughs> well, okay. So, um, you're on YouTube now speaking about your, uh, I guess, your relationship or your life in transition and detransitioning. And... Um, and I just wanted to have you on to hear your story and, and give you a boost in your voice. So would you like to talk about how the idea of transitioning came into your into your head or felt like a, a way to go forward? Okay, sure. Um, I guess um, I'll start with um, my childhood because I think um, one thing that I want to say is that I think a lot of uh, kids who 
are um, being transitioned these days because of the puberty blockers and the affirmation model. Um, you know, there are definitely people who um, would not have um, been at risk of that if they'd been born when I was. I was born in 1983, and that was pretty much um, unheard of that children would be um, diagnosed with gender identity disorder at that time. And there was no, you know, puberty blockers. It was a completely different way of looking at things. It was a watch and wait um, thing. And I was never diagnosed with gender identity disorder as a child, but um, I was a tomboy. I liked to play with boys' toys. Um, I didn't like dresses. Um, I was actually very um, skeptical of what I saw as like the artificialness of femininity. And none of the women in my immediate family were very feminine um, in the sense that um, we're, um, you know, trained to uh, perform femininity with, you know, a lot of makeup and things like that. And I can remember being really, like, grossed out by women who wore, like, artificial fingernails. I thought they were, like, terrifying. And I just didn't understand it at all. And um, I think one of my earliest memories where I felt... Um, like a dysphoria about gender and sex. I would have been probably about seven years old and there was a talking Barbie that came out that said math class is tough. And it was like this big scandal, right? And um, that was around the time that I was starting to figure out that I wasn't good at math after having been told throughout my childhood that I was like a, a child prodigy and a genius and you know, and uh, supposedly when I was eight, I was going to get to go to this magnet school and, you know, for smart kids and stuff. And I ended up not being able to go because I wasn't good enough at math. And that led to like a profound um, crisis, you know, for a child of that age. Um, mm. And uh, I remember, you know, hearing things that were being said in the media about how, oh, there's a stereotype of like the blonde bimbo who's bad at math and how terrible of an example it is for girls. And I was thinking to myself, well, I'm blonde. And I'm not good at math. Does that mean that I am like a bad reflection on on females? You know, um, like are, are there some women who, you know, they get to be um, uh, smart and, you know, independent and they get to be scientists and stuff. And I'm not going to get to do that. You know, how can I set myself apart and not just be this bimbo, you know? And so I, I was like, well, maybe I'll be good at sports, but I wasn't good at sports. So I was like grasping at straws, trying to um, find some way to um, feel better about myself. And I, I, I didn't feel very good about myself. At that point, around that same time, I had been diagnosed with um, ADHD. And I consider that total pseudoscience. Like, it's not part of my identity. A lot of people identify with various diagnoses they've received. And um, especially, it seems like autism, that's very popular for people who are so mildly affected that... Um, they wouldn't have been diagnosed, um, uh, you know, um, based on the way diagnoses were done um, in my childhood. I think if I had been a few years younger, I might have been diagnosed with autism, and I wasn't. And, um, hmm. you know, more recently, they've changed the diagnostic criteria to actually make it harder to get that diagnosis because too many people were getting it. So, you know, I don't want to criticize people if they, you know, are proud to be autistic or whatever, but um, I just, I don't find any of that um, stuff useful. And so I was put on medication. Um, I felt very ashamed about that. I didn't want to take it. It didn't make me feel good, had side effects, um, which started the beginning of my feeling of, 
um, disassociating from my body, I guess, because I was medicalized then at an early age and um, unnecessarily so. And I'm not like a Luddite. Um, you know, I vaccinate my son. I think that most of modern medicine is good, but there's a few places where it's just gone off the rails. And, um, uh, you know, especially with regard to children. So um, I remember trying to research ADHD. You know, here I was like eight years old and I'm you know, I'm reading, you know, the Washington Post and Newsweek and all this stuff, trying to, you know, make sense of um, what was going on. And um, I remember seeing an article um, by someone, and I think it was a woman, about how ADHD was being used to discriminate against little boys who are just behaving the way normal, healthy little boys behave, because that's the way their brains um, are. And I remember thinking, maybe I have a boy's brain. And I would have been like eight. So that's really when it started. And if they had been trans and kids then, that's what would have happened to me. Because, um, you know, I was, um, you know, at that point, um, I was like primed to believe that um, that, that was a possibility, you know, that I had a, a boy's brain and a girl's body and that that was the source of my problems. But fortunately, I didn't come in contact with trans stuff until later because it just wasn't um, part of the popular culture at that point. Um, so, yeah, I was a pretty unhappy kid. I don't want to talk a lot of shit about my parents here. Um, uh, I feel like they did their best. Um, you know, I feel like most of the issues that affected me were larger social issues. Um, and my parents um, were just sort of cogs in the system, you know, in terms of my mom went back to work full time when I was only a few weeks old. I wasn't breastfed. Um, you know, um, I was not... Um, uh, cared for in the way that our species, you know, has evolved over millions of years, you know. Um, and so I think I had some attachment issues. And, um, you know, when I look back on my behavior already as a kid, um, I, there was actually a study not long ago that I thought was interesting. And it talked about bullying and um, victims of bullying. And then, you know, what are the psychological consequences um, then as adults? And um, interestingly, the category that had the worst psychological outcomes was the bully victims, the ones that were bullies and victims at the same time. And I was a bully victim. You know, um, I, I bullied my younger brother. Um, I bullied the few other kids in school who also didn't have friends who probably could have been my friends. Right. But I, I was bullying. them. So, you know, I kind of screwed myself over in that way. And that was basically um, the pattern that was established very early. So um, then, you know, uh, in, in middle school, when I was 13, um, because I didn't uh, shave my legs or armpits, I got called down to the um, school nurse and they presented me with a shaving kit. You know, and at this point, I, I had already been seeing a therapist who was completely useless for years. And um, uh, I don't know that I really see the point of talk therapy for young children in most cases, because in most cases, they haven't actually had enough life experience to really have anything to talk about. So I would just sit there and make up stories. So it actually kind of encouraged me to uh, to lie and to believe my lies, because I was just trying to entertain this woman for an hour, you know, every Thursday. And um, 
<laughs> so she, she she told me that I needed to like dress more femininely and stuff so that I could finally have friends. And for the the couple years preceding that, um, you know, like I said, starting when I was 10, I started to develop before most of the other girls. And I had started to be sexually harassed. And I tried to protect myself from that. It was the grunge era. And I was wearing, you know, giant flannel shirts and that sort of stuff. And I was comfortable dressing that way. But then all of a sudden I was encouraged to try to dress in a feminine way. And I was told that that was going to help me make friends my age, which actually was not true. And so I, I really didn't want to shave my legs and armpits. Um, and I really didn't want to try to dress femininely. And when I did at first, just trying to wear normal clothes that um, girls of that age wear, uh, you know, um, I then be, became sexually harassed even more. And it's because, um, you know, of um, there's a lot of things, you know, wrong. I mean, y you have, you know, a, a, a certain percentage of men who are, you know, who are predatory um, and who seek out young girls to sexually harass um, because they're afraid of uh, their peers. They're afraid of adult women. So they go for young girls because they know they can intimidate them really easily. And I didn't realize that that was a temporary thing. Um, you know, I was like, oh, my God, like, this is what being a woman means. It means that I'm going to be faced with harassment all the time. And I remember actually reading some because um, I've read like way above my age level and comprehension level. And it just it kind of screwed me up probably even more <laughs> um, trying to figure things out on my own because no one was giving me helpful advice. None of the adult women who were in my life um, were present enough and honest enough to help me figure stuff out. So I was doing all this research and coming to all these false conclusions. Like I, I remember reading like liberal feminist stuff that was like, oh, um, you know, uh, it's being sexy is empowering. And so then instead of wearing, um, well, I'll finish saying, okay, so you, I didn't realize that that kind of harassment would go away. And, and I, I, um, I remember reading some radical feminist stuff, which encouraged me to believe that it wouldn't go away. It was like being a female just means nothing but sexual harassment and rape until you die. And I was like, oh, my God, like, this is terrible. Like, how do what's how do I get out of this? This is there has to be a way out because that just sounds terrible. And, um, you know, so you have this this problem with these perverse men. So, you know, a young girl just dressing like a young girl, that's their erotic ideal. But then you also have another issue, which is that the clothes that are um, marketed to young girls, and you really can't find anything else if you go to a young girl s section of a, a, a clothing store, unless it's like a religious clothing store for girls who are, you know, forbidden to wear anything, quote unquote, fun. All the clothes that are supposed to be fun, um, that are the, the mainstream of are sexualizing. And so I went from wearing the big baggy flannel shirts to wearing, you know, tight shirts that where you could... Um, you know, really see the outline of my body. And that's really when the dysphoria started, like mm -hmm. when I started to really feel uncomfortable in my body. And it, it became um, really extreme. And I, I um, you know, I was on all this unnecessary medication. And I was so I was sort of like I was sort of high all the time. And I started to really dissociate. And then I remember reading the liberal feminist stuff that was like, oh, sexy is empowering. And so I remember going to vintage clothing stores and buying like dominatrix outfits and i was thinking this way um the men will think that i know more about sex than they do and they'll be scared of me hmm. you know that was what i thought because i was i was literally like 13 right so i was like yeah. i was like this is going to be my my battle armor right 
And, you know, I was going through sort of a goth phase. I can remember um, that was around the time the Columbine shootings happened. And I remember writing a letter to the local newspaper saying that they, they shouldn't blame it on goths and that was discrimination. And it was very much like you, I could have written the same letter um, you know, a few years later about trans people. I was like, how dare you demonize X group? Um, you know, we're so oppressed. We're a minority, you know? So I, I already was like, like that even before I got exposed to a lot of that ideological stuff, it was sort of in me. And I think that's one of the reasons I think I'd be an interesting case study because, um, so much of what has come o over the last, um, you know, couple decades to, um, so much of what has been uh, mass produced and forced on all these people, I was at the vanguard. And I don't want to be like a megalomaniac and think that like my thoughts um, were responsible for this stuff. But I somehow, I guess, was very sensitive to um, stuff that was, I mean, not really like in the public consciousness that much yet. And I, I really was at the vanguard. And I, I just I feel partially because of that, um, like I need to unpack this stuff to help to help us all understand what has happened over the last 20 years. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that was my mentality. That was, you know, I had the goth thing. And then that pretty quickly went down in, in flames because um, I was getting harassed even more and I started self-injuring. And um, and then I ended up um, I in the internet and that we got dial up internet. And I remember going online and finding on um, these transgender message boards. And that was all, um, uh, for, um, trans women. And most of what, um, I was seeing was actually being written by people with, I guess what you'd call autogynephilia, although I'm not a big fan of diagnostic labels. There was a lot of, um, erotica, um, that was like forced feminization erotica about underage girls. And to me, that was like what I had experienced. I was like, wow, like, you know, um, this is kind of how I feel. I feel like, you know, the world is this like perverse place that's trying to force me to be the sex object. And, um, and so interestingly, some, what, what these people were having as their jerk off fantasy was actually very similar to the writing of like Andrea Dworkin in like a weird um, mm. kind of threw a mirror away because I was reading these things around the same time and um, there wasn't very much mention of um, trans men um, in the internet at that point. That was sort of almost like it was like an afterthought. But I was like, well, that must be what I am. Like I'm a man and I need to find a way to stay a man and not be forced to be this this female thing that I'm really not. So I felt very strongly then at that point that um, – I, I needed to rescue myself from these forces that were going to, you know, feminize me. And, um, you know, like all these people, these adults had been telling me that I would, I mean, I remember in our sex ed class and then when I got pulled aside by the, um, the school nurse and also my psychologist, they kept telling me that I would someday change my mind and I would want to do all these things that I didn't want to do. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to lose myself. I have to find a way to prevent that, you know. So I cut off my hair and I started trying to um, to pass as male, and um, it, it totally screwed up my school situation. So I ended up going to a different high school than the one I was supposed to go to, and that was supposed to be a fresh start. But um, it didn't really work out that way. I still didn't have a male name. I still didn't really know what to do um, because 
um, there, there weren't a bunch of other young girls doing this and guiding me. I was kind of on my own um, trying to figure things out. And um, so I ended up not finishing high school. I got switched around to a few different schools. And I finally ended up in a school for emotionally disturbed kids. And so then I dropped out and I, I got a job at a florist and I saved up some money and I ran away to San Francisco, California, um, where um, in kind of like a weird little ahead of its time Petri dish, you had a similar situation to what I guess you have all over the place now, where people who are obviously mentally ill could walk into a clinic um, and demand hormones and receive them. And that was not possible, I think, anywhere else in the country at that point. But it was in San Francisco. And so that's where I went. Can I ask you one question? Uh, And feel free not to answer this. I'm just wondering, um, what was your relationship to desiring other people? Did did you have an experience of, I want, or falling in love or romance or sexual attraction to males or females? What was was your own natural, like, like, that which came out of you for somebody else? Um, well, that's interesting, Um, and it's hard to explain, and it's one of those things where I feel like there's different ways that I could talk about, I mean, all these things, there's different, I could present my story in any one of a number of ways, um, all of which would be more or less, um, accurate, and I want to be as honest as possible, but I know that even with doing that, um, there's going to be things that seem to contradict each other, um, so I was never really attracted to um, girls. I thought for a brief period after having cut my hair, but before having, um, uh, you know, gotten completely uh, convinced that I was male and changing my name and my pronouns, that I might be a lesbian. Um, but it pretty quickly uh, became obvious that I wasn't because I tried um, uh, you know, to be, um, sexual, uh, with, um, uh, other, uh, girls. I, I sought out, you know, people to do that with, and it became apparent that, um, I wasn't a lesbian. So that was very okay. disappointing for me. Um, and, um, I felt would like at that, that time, have been an answer that would have been an answer. Yeah. I think, I think if I had been able to, um, either be attracted to women or convince myself that I was, or even be okay with convincing others of that while privately knowing it wasn't true, I may have been able to avoid what came next or at least postpone it. I don't know. But I don't know because that's not what happened. What happened is I abandoned attempting to be a lesbian and um, uh, because I was attracted to males, and at that point I was convinced that I was male, I, um, immediately identified as a male homosexual. Okay. Okay. Did that, uh, uh, go factor into your move to San Francisco? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, um, oh God. And here, here's where we get to some of this stuff. You know, I, when I was going through all the stuff that comes in, I guess the next chapter that we're starting to get into now, I thought I was a badass. And, you know, we didn't have um, the social media that we have now then, but um, partially into this um, live journal and MySpace did appear. And I um, also was involved with like the anarchist DIY scene. I made zines, um, you know, self-published writing and um, horrible stuff. And I was obsessed with um, 
with presenting myself as a gay male. And it was, I think in some ways, very similar to autogynephilia. Like I really sought out um, validation from gay men. Um, but at the same time, I also sought out rejection because some part of me wanted that also. So I was like, you know, going head on. And that's one of the reasons why I, you know, and I, I don't have any sympathy for um, people with autogynephilia who are like sexualizing little girls and things like that. But for the ones that really uh, just are trying to be um, normal lesbians, which is, of course, impossible, I actually do have some sympathy. And, um, I, you know, I just was so at that point, I had become so spiritually, mentally, emotionally sick that I wasn't aware of or was oblivious to the harm I was causing other people because I thought I was victim number one. And um, it was really bad. But um, I didn't end up there immediately. There was um, there were steps in the, the process. But I started with that kind of stuff pretty soon. I mean, even before I went to San Francisco, when I had started figuring out how I could pass as male, um, I had started going to places where gay men would cruise and where there were male hustlers to try to test my passing. And hmm. at that point, I was... 16, so I was underage, but when I was passing as a male, I looked even younger. So I was attracting guys who um, were into teenage boys, young teenage boys. And, um, you know, I had a few friends who were other young, screwed up gay kids. And, um, you know, I just thought it was, you know, it was like, on, on one level, it was, it was like funny. You know, but on another level, I was it was it was literally like it was just it was just so sick. Um, so, yeah, so I went to San Francisco and um, in San Francisco, I actually ended up um, getting taken in by these tranny hooker girls and they were living with their sugar mama, who was like an old like autogynephilia um, trans woman. And um, it was interesting because. You know, they all had, you know, really serious, you know, problems. Um, but, you know, they were my friends. And I feel like I have a fair amount of insight into, um, you know, like really unstable trans women that a lot of um, people don't have because of that, having that experience. And I can't see them as anything other than human, you know. Mm -hmm. So I, it bothers me when I see, I mean, a lot of people who've been through some stuff that's some, somewhat similar to what I've been through, but then they're in a place now where they are seeing trans women as being like, you know, the enemy. And like, for me, like the enemy is all of the people who aren't mentally ill, but who are profiting from, um, you know, the trans medical industry, um, people who are stuck in it, you know, um, and can't, um, you know, think straight, you know, um, hmm. I really don't have any animosity toward them. So I was living with these people. I was, um, you know, uh, I started uh, uh, taking testosterone, um, which I got from a clinic. Um, and I, I hear sometimes that, you know, um, only recently have people been able to get hormones prescribed who obviously didn't fulfill like some really stringent diagnostic criteria. But I can say that at least in San Francisco at that time, and that would have been, I guess, 2001 or 2002, 2001. Yeah. Um, if they gave me hormones, I mean, they would give it to anyone. Um, so, 
So, yeah, so I was um, participating in multiple worlds at that time. There was like the, the tranny hooker girl and male hustler world. Um, and um, and did you fit in, in with the people in those cultures? Well, interestingly, you know, the, here's the thing that and OK, I don't want to like get because here's the thing. Right. I'm still dysphoric. I'm still sick since I um, freed myself from the prison that I was living in, in my head, um, I've learned how to let the thoughts, um, how, how to, when I'm having a thought that's like crazy, I, I can acknowledge it and then let it go. Okay. And that's a meditation thing. Mm-hmm. But I still, if I let myself, I could very easily talk myself into thinking that I'm a gay man again, hmm. because okay. culturally I fit in better with those people than I did okay. with, um, when I finally came in contact with other um, uh, trans um, masculine people and, and gender queers and stuff, I didn't really fit in with them. I was like, oh my God, this is like being on the playground with all the other little girls that are excluding me. And I don't know how to behave with them. Um, you know, they're too much like women. So I thought that I was like more of a real man because I was a gay man. And that these other, um, you know, F to M's were like kind of like lesbians. And, um, you know, I, I remember after spending time with, um, you know, the tranny hooker girls and, and the hustler boys um, where um, consent was touch based. Like if someone touched you and you didn't want them to, you had to say, don't touch me. <laughs> right. And um, so I thought, OK, that's normal. Now, in retrospect, I had really screwed up boundaries. These people all had really screwed up boundaries. Maybe that wasn't a good system. Maybe it's better to err on the side of asking. You know, maybe the only reason that made sense to me was because I was screwed up, because I was very screwed up. But I was shocked then when um, in then in um, Berkeley, there was this conference for um, trans people. But it was, you know, um, it was a different crowd. It was, um, you know, FDMs and genderqueers at the beginning of that being like a community. Um, because previously it hadn't been a community in the same way. I remember going to a few trans support groups and there were like a few old F to M's who were like, don't go down this road. You know what I mean? Um, but then this was something new. This was a bunch of young people who were my age or a couple of years older who were college students who were coming together and forming something like what was the nucleus of what became this mass movement where it was the, the academic queer theory and the actually medically transitioning thing coming together, I think, for the first time. And they had this conference in Berkeley, and I went there, and I remember touching another trans man, and he got so upset. He was like, you assaulted me. And I was like, what? Like, why didn't you just say, don't touch me? And, you know, in Uh retrospect, I apologize. I don't want to justify what I did and say that that was wrong. I I don't go around touching people these days, Um, you know, but um, it was just, it was a different culture. It was a different okay. culture. And I, um, you know, for me, and some of that is, I guess, maybe, you know, the, the autistic thing, like my social skills aren't that good. And um, this is also, it is in no way to justify people who actually sexually assault people. Um, but I think that <laughs> things have gotten to the point now where um, people with really bad social skills can try to flirt and um, do something like put their hand on someone and then pretty quickly they've been branded like a rapist. And, you know, that happens to people who are male. Um, and, um, I'm sure that, I mean, if I tried to think of like what I would have been like if I'd actually been born male, um, 
I'm sure, you know, I, I would have, you know, been, um, you know, somebody who would have had that kind of stuff happen to them um, because I would have been um, crossing people's boundaries. So it wouldn't have been the other people's fault, but it also would have been kind of an unfortunate uh, way that communication really isn't happening um, mm-hmm. these days. It's like we've we've broken down all these barriers that used to be sort of oppressive, but they also kind of protected people. And now people just don't know what to do without that. So mm-hmm. anyway, so that was my, my experience with that. And um, after a while, I kind of got sick of the tranny hooker girls because they were so feminine. And what I really wanted was, you know, gay men. And um, but they, um, because they're homosexual, you know, weren't actually, you know, that into me. So I got um, deeper and deeper into um the this sort of sick dynamic of seeking people out who would reject me and i actually think that that had a lot to do with transitioning to begin with because in a way it's like when you decide you're gonna make your whole life depend on um other people accepting you for something that you can't ever really be it's like you're setting yourself up to um you know to fail and in a way i think i I wanted to fail um i had a lot of guilt for all of the supposed privilege that i had um you know i I, um i was at that point also i I said i was kind of moving between two communities and by that i didn't mean the fdm community and the tranny hooker girl and hustler boy community because i really didn't try to hang out with the fdms at all um but what i meant though the the second community was the, the anarchist community Um, At that point, I was, you know, an anarchist. I'd been publishing zines, going to protests, um, coming very close to that. That anarchist community would eventually become what we now think of as Antifa. Is that well? Antifa already existed, and I was part of that. And I can talk um, in some detail about it because um, I was at, like I said, the vanguard. Literally, Um, like if this was like, if this, if we, if, if I was like some old person talking about what happened during the Russian Revolution and how, how, why am I still alive and all these people are dead because of me. That's kind of a little bit how I feel because I was like a Bolshevik. Um, in a sense, I was like yeah. fighting for all of these <clears throat> obscure ideals. And then um, I, I ducked out. And then after I ducked out, um, all this other stuff came and, you know, and it's just been More like mainstream. blood and guts ever since then. Mm. Um, but I kind of helped pave the way for that in a way. And I don't want to like overstate my role, but um, when I was involved in this anarchist community at first, um, you know, they didn't know anything about trans stuff. And I tried to educate them about mm-hmm. that. Um, but mm-hmm. they weren't really that receptive. It, they, it wasn't part of that thing yet at all. And um, I went through some ebbs and flows in how um, dysphoric I was. And I think at many of these points, when I was the least dysphoric, I could have desisted or detransitioned and, and didn't. Um, and it was, it, was, it was partially based on, you know, who I was surrounding myself with. And when I was surrounding myself with the trannies, um, you know, and the gay men who I was trying to um, manipulate into um, affirming me um, against their will, um, I was very strongly identifying as male. But then in this anarchist scene where nobody knew anything about trans stuff, um, and this was actually, I, I need to cycle back. This was a, before I started testosterone. And it, this is, there's actually, I can tell you about one event that was a major thing that made me decide to start testosterone. Because I actually, I, I had been to San Francisco twice and then hitchhiked back and forth across the country and rode freight trains. And that's what I was doing, going to protests. So when I was with oh, these yeah. anarchists, 
it, it was actually the third time that I went to San Francisco that I started Hormones, um, and that was shortly after my 18th birthday. So when I was still 17, um, I was, you know, with these anarchists, and um, uh, I had been less dysphoric. I had been almost, you know, sort of forgetting about how important I had thought it was to get on hormones, you know, which didn't mean that I was um, identifying as female, but it just um, didn't seem so urgent. And then um, one night I spent the night um, in the indie media office, which is supposed to be this like independent um, uh, media, but it's actually just very ideologically driven and not really independent. And um, hmm. spending the night with me there, because I was homeless at the time, we'd been squatting, but our squat had been busted, and so uh, everyone had to find places to stay, was um, this guy who was around, probably around 30, so younger than I am now, but he was an old guy for me then, because I was a teenager. And, um, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and he was trying to rape me. And, um, you know, but as soon as I defended myself, he stopped. And, of course, he could have used his superior physical force and actually raped me, um, you know, and he could have responded to my self-defense with violence and seriously hurt me or even killed me. But he didn't do that. And um, instead he stopped and then he started crying and threatening to commit suicide and making me comfort him. So that was very charming. Um, <laughs> but then the next day I was like, well, you know, we need to bring this up at a community, um, meeting and, and talk about what happened. Um, because this guy, if he would do this to me, um, he's not safe. And so, so I went to these other anarchist, um, uh, women and I talked to them other, and they're like, oh yeah, he's done that to all these women, but none of them want to talk about it. And I was like, what the fuck? This wouldn't have happened to me if the first person he had done this to had, had done had done something about it. And I was wondering why no one wanted to hang out with this guy. I thought it was just because he's kind of like me, his bad social skills, he's not that good with boundaries. I didn't think he would actually try to rape someone. You know, this is oh. like way beyond. Like this isn't the kind of thing, you know, that you can just um, be quiet about. And so we're going to have a meeting and we're going to talk about this. And can any of these other women come and support me? And they were like, well, no, none of them want to... And I was like, okay, well then I'll I'll do it, um, you know. So they got me ridiculously stoned, and um, and then he was there, and um, and it, it's it, it turned into this the battle of the victimhood thing, and I was just this pawn. You had these women who were saying, oh, women, they're the most oppressed ever. All we do is get raped, and then you had these men saying. Um, uh, this is like a lynch mob. It's because he's a man of color. And here this horrible white woman wants to have him lynched. And the irony is that, um, and I'm not going to say that I don't have um, deep-seated racist impulses, but he wasn't even on my radar as a person of color. He was um, uh, Latino, but from an academic family. And the reason he was homeless is because he was a drug addict. But a lot of these people didn't understand that. They um, had such a simplistic way of looking at things. That they thought if he's homeless, it must be because he's so oppressed. Um, but it's actually because he's a drug addict and because, you know, he um, is somebody who would, you know, just attempt to rape anyone who he could get his hands on. And, you know, it's obviously serious personal problems, which resulted in him being homeless, not because he's so oppressed or whatever. And so it turned into this thing where um, after that, I was just like, you know, I I had been used as a pawn in this horrible thing, and then nothing ended up happening to him because at the end the decision was that he was more oppressed as a person of color, 
but it was important to highlight how much of a victim I was because I was a woman and I represented the the infinite suffering of all of womankind or whatever. And after that, I was like, fuck this shit. I need to go on yeah. testosterone and cut off my tits. And so I went oh. back to San Francisco and um, I went on testosterone like immediately after that. I was like, I can't let uh, myself be put in that role again. Um, and, you know, I had um, just a little prior to that, I had taught a workshop on transgender issues at an anarchist book fair. And at that point, like I said, none of the anarchists knew about this. So I was actually probably one of the first people, which isn't to say that everything that came next was the logical result of what I set in motion. It isn't. I was a bit player. Um, but at the time that I gave this workshop, um, this was new information that I was disseminating to people who'd never heard of this shit before, telling people about how to respect people's pronouns. And so I did that all kind of trying to defend myself. And then I was like, well, this obviously didn't work because, you know, look what happened. And what upset me the most wasn't that this guy tried to rape me. Um, you know, at least he stopped, right? He stopped when I told him to stop. But these people who put me in this weird show trial of him, um, yeah. they didn't stop. And it was so humiliating that I immediately after that decided that I needed to physically transition so people would take me seriously. So I uh, went back to San Francisco and I got on hormones. Okay. And what was and, it like getting on hormones then? How did that shape Oh, let your... me just finish. So I just want to say about the okay. thing with the Antifa. So Antifa, um, I continued to be involved. I almost became like a terrorist basically because it, it was, it was a grab bag of ideas that conflicted with each other. Like, you know, environmental extremism, extremist, anti-racism that meant attacking people who you thought might be Nazis. And um, that pretty quickly to me became something that I wasn't comfortable with. Although I, I really did want to, you know, destroy property and that kind of thing. The idea of actual violence against people never really sat well with me. And um, I remember participating in an Antifa action where um, we went to... Um, uh, to protest against this neo-Nazi rally that was happening outside the Israeli embassy. And um, it was my idea to throw urine balloons at the Nazis. But for me, that was, like, cute. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't actually want to hurt anyone. I just wanted to violate them in another way, which is sick in and of itself. But I, I certainly wasn't thinking about, you know, um, beating somebody, you know, to the point where they need to be hospitalized or any of these other things that Antifa um, does. And... Um, I, uh, um, a little bit later, and it's interesting how these this vacillation between the anarchist community and the trans community. Um, it, this this same this is like a light motif repeated itself right before my um, first chest surgery, which um, was a few years later. It was uh, right after my twentieth birthday, so like two years later um, was when I finally parted ways with the anarchist scene, and that was after. In Philadelphia, um, all the other kids who were squatting in the squat, which I had actually opened, I was really into breaking into buildings because it was macho, right? I would open up the building, and then these all these losers would come and, and stay there. And so they all decided that they were going to go beat up people who were going to see um, a concert that they had decided must be Nazis because they liked this particular band. Um, and I tried to talk them out of it, and they threatened me with violence because I was defending these people's free speech, right? And so at that point, I was like, you know, fuck the anarchists. And I just doubled down on my own self-destructive behavior. 
because mm. that that was the whole reason that I was interested in anarchism to begin with. It was really out of um, this self hatred. It was like an externalization of my internal self hatred, you know. And I actually, in the beginning, there were some some of the ideas I had are things that I still agree with. I mean, being anti you know, IMF, World Bank, all the stuff that we were protesting against in the beginning that first drew me in, you know, the big protests. You remember this stuff. Um, uh, some of those ideas, I actually, in my own um, way that now that I've analyzed them, um, you know, I, I still actually um, uh, have some similar critiques of, of um, capitalism um, and stuff. But but that, what, what got me so um, crazy was was my self-hatred. And that was both motivating the trans stuff and the, the anarchist stuff, I think. Um, you know. Do you, so, yeah, you want to ask self-hatred? Well, no, I think on a certain way I did. And I want to talk about that more later, but we're, we're not going to have time. Um, so okay. maybe in, an, in another talk, but um, okay. go ahead. You, you wanted to ask me a question. I've been almost doing a monologue this whole time, but go ahead. No, that's fine. I, I, you, you, we, you, I, I forgot my original question. No, you, you said, what was it like getting on testosterone? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then. What was okay. Like well, you know what? Actually, I think that's something that we can we can we can handle that very briefly because everyone who's gone on testosterone will have the same experience, which is being insanely horny and all of that stuff. So you can get that from someone else. Um, <laughs> okay. So that was um, that was my experience. But and, did it but make you feel that, like it made me feel you, great? You, you know, I mean, okay. I thought it was. I, I was like, wow, this is. This is this is healing, you know. This is I, I feel healthier, okay. I feel stronger. Everything's great, um, and and that's one of the things that's so deceptive. It's like you you don't you not only have the propaganda which now has become pervasive from you know the trans ideology, which um, has rebranded self harm as self care, but you also have the fact that, and I can't speak for trans women. But that, that testosterone actually makes you feel good. I mean, I, I was exhausted. I'd been living, you know, burning the candle at both ends, hitchhiking around the country. I was exhausted. But when I took testosterone, I had more energy. I was stronger. Um, and it just it, it felt right, um, at least at first. So it sounds like a, you became a super soldier. <laughs> yeah, yeah kind of until until my body basically just like imploded. So it but, did have – how long were you on testosterone before you uh... – um, Well, you know, that's a good question. And I thought that I had a stalker who was like a computer whiz who was going to like find my old medical records for me. Um, but I apparently don't. So I'm going to have to try to dig that stuff up so I can say exactly. But because of how dysfunctional my lifestyle was, I was on it with interruptions. And that may okay. be partially responsible for um, – some of the ways that it maybe was more harmful because of the vacillating, but also some of the ways that it was maybe less harmful because my body maybe reset itself a few times. And so even though it was a period of over like six years where I was on it for cumulatively like four years, it was, it, it was broken up. But anyway, um, so I don't know. That's all stuff that I still need to do more research on. Okay. But um, you did ask me though about the thing with the self-hatred and I actually, that's something I want to talk about. And I, I, I'm going to do more research on philosophy so I can talk more about that later. But, um, you know, I really wanted to be good and I didn't know how. That's how I got involved with the anarchism, you know. And, you know, we're growing up in a society where um, I, at least, and this is the experience that a lot of people are having, 
you know, um, I was told as a child that I was supposed to figure things out on my own and that previous generations were, um, you know, uh, stupid because they tried to teach kids common sense, you know, and that I should just figure out what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. And um, I think, you know, for kids, especially for kids who actually are creative and stuff, that's extremely disorienting. And um, now that I've researched, you know, like Aristotelian ethics and stuff, I know that, um, you know, if, if, if you want to be good, you practice doing good things. And, you know, and also uh, in a completely different um, uh, ethical theory, you know, Kant, you know, he said, I've never seen a good man, only a good act or whatever. And so I, I, I wanted to be good, but I thought um, I have all this all these reasons to think I'm a bad person, that I'm defective, that I'm bad. So I can't possibly be good. I don't deserve to be good. And I remember reading um, Jean Genet when I was like, you know, 15 and the introduction by Sartre. And I remember thinking, you know, this, I could relate to it a lot. And I was like, okay, well, if other people are going to say I'm a thief, I'm a bad person, then I'll double down on that. And that'll be empowering, you know, because I didn't see a way out. I thought, I thought all I could do was find a feeling of freedom within slavery. I didn't think I could actually be free. And um, what I've learned now is that that's bullshit. And I've also learned that, um, you know, if you study Kantian ethics, you know, we're, we're only really free when we're using um, reason to make decisions. And instead of being driven by um, emotions and um, uh, desires, um, you know, but, but um, the, the thing is, is that children, of course, they're not in a place to be able to do that. Um, so that's why it's important, like with the Aristotelian ethics, you know, to, to raise children to practice doing the right thing even before they understand why it's right. And um, I didn't have that. So I was very confused and I wanted to be good. I thought I was bad. So I thought that to be good would be to destroy myself because I was bad. And um, so there was this, this self-negating, life-negating, and um, the life-negating thing. That's, I think, there's, there's different ways of analyzing why this trans thing has become a mass phenomenon. And I actually think that the radical feminist analysis is right on in a lot of ways, but it can only go so far because there's an inherent flaw to radical feminism, which is that it's life negating. And there's going to be people who are going to disagree with that. But there's this. What, do you um, mean by that? Uh, what I mean by that is we're all. Are you childless? Childless? Yes. I have my own childhood, have... but I don't have a no. child. OK, so OK. So and I don't I don't want to, like, put you on the spot. But um, if we want to pass on our culture and beliefs, whatever those are, you know, as individuals, whatever our idea is of what we, we have, if we think we have something that's worth passing on, um, probably the most important thing that we can do, I'm talking as individuals, even though I'm saying we, um, is, is to have children. And um, in, um, you know, not just in radical feminism, but in, I guess, just mainstream, it's, immoral to have a child unless you have everything perfect right so basically religion used to be sex is immoral but having children is a necessity and then it became well now sex is mandatory i guess it's free but you have to everyone's doing it you know like this thing now you know people call themselves asexual or demisexual that didn't exist when i was young i probably would have identified with that 
But it's actually normal to not just want to be constantly having sex. We just live in an over-sexualized <laughs> culture. So people think that they need a special label for being normal. But anyway, so there's this idea that sex is, is normal. Everyone should be having sex um, all the time. But having a child is the sin. So, so, so that's, it's kind of this inversion of the religious morality. And people have different explanations for it. Some people will say it's because of climate change. That's the thing they're talking about now. Um, in my generation, it was more general environmental concerns about overpopulation and stuff. Um, you know, but of course, that leaves out the fact that, you know, other people who don't give a shit about all that stuff are going to continue having children. So if you, you choose to not have children, that just means there's going to be less people growing up to, you know, um, even be aware sure. of those issues uh, in the future. So it's, it seems to me that this, this antinatalism, you know, it's, and, and it's very much related to um, the utilitarian ethics that sort of informs all of Western society now. You know, this idea that the greatest good is um, whatever's going to produce the most happiness for the most people. And then, mm -hmm. of course, the inverse of that is the least suffering. And if so, if you think, you know, children are just going to be miserable, then um, or that you'll be miserable having to deal with the children, then obviously it, it can't ever be a morally right decision to have children. So it becomes this thing where there's like no justification to have children. And then the radical feminists say, you know, um, that, uh, you know, the childbearing, you know, that, that the, the, the child actually becomes like the oppressor of, of the woman, in a sense. Um, and that it's, it's something that's used by men to enslave women. And, you know, I just I just think there's there's something inherently. Um, uh, well, it's not sustainable. I mean, and if you look at, you know, like the Shakers, they were such a beautiful, peaceful religious community and they died out because they didn't have kids. And if you look at the modern Western society, it's not a beautiful peaceful community um but it does have a lot of things going for it i don't want to see it mm -hmm. replaced with religious fundamentalism of any sort um mm -hmm. you know but people aren't reproducing and it's very sad instead of finding a way for men and women to come together as equals and and raise children um people are no longer having children and um and i think part of the reason why um you know trans kids being sterilized is not seen as a big deal is because um, a lot of people, including the parents of these children, um, just because you've had children doesn't mean you've actually analyzed this stuff. Um, in fact, if anything, some of them, I think they feel guilty because they reproduce. So they think, well, maybe it'll lessen their sin of having reproduced if they make sure their kid doesn't reproduce. It's very sick. Um, hmm. You know, so people don't think it's a big deal to miss out on having children because that's considered the norm. So that doesn't um, set off alarm bells. But yeah, so that's basically, for me, and I know I'm going to probably lose a lot of my followers. They're going to think, you know, I'm terrible because, um, you know, I don't support antinatalism. But um, that is, for me, there's so many different layers, some of which are contradictory, because we're talking about like a, um, 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 a social mental illness, uh, an irrational uh, you know, um, uh, um, belief system. So that's not all going to make sense. And there's, so there's, there's different layers and there's some people who are doing a very good analysis of some of them. And I see that coming from the radical feminists more than anyone else. And I, I want to say that, and I think that's really valuable, but there's this other layer, which I see as being maybe even the deepest because it affects the whole society. It's not just the trans thing. The trans thing is almost like the tip of the iceberg where it's like, the most blatantly outrageous. Okay.
And that 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 core thing for you, or that you're pointing to, the deeper thing for you, mm-hmm. has to do with um, reproduction. Has to do with our connection yes. with with life as as yeah. a process of generations. Yeah, exactly. With with, with ourselves as um, as living beings, you know, as animals. Not to denigrate that. Um, you know, because I love nature, you know, I mean, that's what I've spent most of the last several years doing since I detransitioned was working at a, um, a nonprofit, um, uh, organization that cultivates native plants. And, um, you know, if, if, if you think something's good, then you want to make more of it. Right. Um, you know, and so that, and this is the desire, this is the drive, this is, um, what motivates all living beings. Um, you know, and it's something so deep and so, integral um you know our dna wants to replicate itself and and then people get grossed out by that they're like ew i don't want to be that and i think part of that is because right now we live in a society where most people they don't believe in in like a soul so they think you know they need to try to um find a way to uh um to separate themselves from their body but they can't think about themselves as having a soul so then they ha- they have to negate their body in this other way, and um, that's what a lot of this you know the trans stuff is yeah. about. It's like the triumph of the will, the intellect, you know, over the yeah. body. And mm-hmm. um, I don't actually believe in religious things that we can't experience. I don't think that that is necessary. But the, the part of us that can think rationally, in a way that is, that's like a soul, right? Um, you know, and I, I, um, I think it's just, it's so important, um, that we, um, acknowledge that and appreciate it. And, you know, all these people who feel like, um, you know, they must have like a special brain, you know, cause they're trans or whatever. In some ways, I think it's actually, it's a desire to, um, to find a sense of themselves that isn't just their body, like that to transcend, you know, and, and because we, we're not doing that in a, a spiritual, religious, philosophical way, then they find this really coarse uh, way of trying to achieve that same thing. And um, Medically and um, with labels. Yeah. Yeah. So then, and I, I want to say then, um, uh, I guess uh, I'll end with the t- two notes that I wrote. Um, uh, and then I'll, I'll say that that, um, so yeah, and then I also, another thing I'll say is, it wouldn't surprise me at all if if I had been born male, if I would have become a trans woman. You know, I don't think it's all about sex or gender, just because that's how it's manifesting itself. I think a lot of it has to do with just this alienation and trying to find an authentic self, but yeah. going in the opposite direction um, because of how confused we are. So I wanted to say, um, and here's the thing. So I'm studying um, to teach biology and also um, philosophy to like high school age kids here in Austria. And um, I've only had, you know, two semesters of that. And so I'm not really in a position to be able to like pontificate about this stuff very effectively. And I'm also studying it in German. And I thought, you know, being bilingual was going to be this great thing. But now I found I've been studying all this stuff, Kant, which is originally written in German. And now I'm having trouble trying to explain it in English. I mean, I, I don't want to start speaking German to you. So I just wrote down these quotes from Kant. So um, it, I really just want, I want to encourage people to read um, the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals. He wrote that in 1785. Uh, and um, he talks about um, 
the hi hypothetical imperatives, which is um, uh, to, to um, do something to achieve a goal. Like if you want um, to pass the exam, then you must study, right? Or, you know, if you want your belief system to carry on, then, you know, have children. <laughs> Maybe that's just my... But then he talks about the categorical imperative. And the categorical imperative... And people should also read his, his critique of pure reason to understand his thinking better. But, um, okay, so the categorical imperative, act only according to that maxim whereby you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. Yeah. And so that um, th that is a good test to see if something is is morally right. And so yeah, if, if you if you say um, what if a behavior okay. can scale across scale. a society, then it's yeah more, yeah because it without can it can replicate it, itself with, yeah, without, without contradicting yeah. itself. So yeah. for instance, if you think to yourself, okay, well I'd like to lie to get myself out of a situation. Well, if you turn lying into a universal law then um, there is no truth or lies and it just combusts, right? So you know that's obviously mm -hmm. not, um, you know, that doesn't work. Um, so then, then another formulation is act in such a way that you treat humanity, whether in your own person or in the person of any other, never merely as a means to an end, but always at the same time as an end. So this might sound like really basic stuff, but like I certainly hadn't encountered anything like this, you know, um, when I was younger. Community? No, no, not at all. So, <laughs> so yeah. So anyway, um, well, so yeah, I guess okay. I'll just yeah. Laura, um, I I have a feeling that the audience is going to be terribly disappointed that we have to end right now because your your child's coming back. Yeah, so my, he's about to, to walk through the door. Yeah, so um, we're going to say you're going to come back on, right? I respect his private sphere. Um, yes, I am. I, I, can I end on okay. just one thing, though? Okay, yeah, the other yeah, note okay. that I made. Okay, so I, I just want to say that I really appreciate how the, the radical feminist lesbian community has been so welcoming to so many other female detransitioners who otherwise would be isolated. And even if some of their ideas are a little whack, it's a lot healthier than the, the trans ideology. So it's like cult deprogramming is helping people. I don't want to come out against radical feminists. I also have some positive experience with them. I'll actually tell a quick little story. After my second botched chest surgery, I ended up homeless. And a friend of mine um, found a place for me to stay that was actually at an old farm that had been run by um, radical feminists. And so I just, there's, a, there's a, a goodness, a concern for other women that's there, and I just want to make that clear. Then the other thing I wanted to say, though, is that there's, I think, I think for, um, for young people who are gender dysphoric, um, who, you know, who, young female people, but who aren't attracted to women, it's really important for them to know that um, uh, they don't have to choose between either being a lesbian or transitioning and trying to be a gay man. And uh, that was a choice that I thought I had to make. And when I look at a lot of you know, what's being said online, um, you know, by lesbians who obviously they want to define their community and they have every right to, um, you know, if they don't want, you know, obviously males there, that's fine. If they don't want bisexual women there, that's fine too. I'm not a lesbian. I have no stake in it. But um, it keeps being said that the majority of 
um, you know, children who um, would be diagnosed with gender dysphoria, um, you know, would grow up to be healthy homosexuals if they weren't, you know, interfered with. And um, we have so little data from the transitional period uh, between when no one was really paying attention to gender nonconforming children and the period now where you have the affirmation model and all the kids getting shunted into um, the uh, uh, puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and sterilization. Um, but you have this one study from November 2008 that people mention, Psychosexual Outcome of Gender Dysphoric Children. And it's from the mm -hmm. Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. And it's very small. You had a sample size of only 77, only 18 girls. Um, but when they did the follow-up at 16 years old, um, uh, four girls were untraceable, nine were still dysphoric, which, I mean, does that mean they need to be sterilized? I'm thinking, I'm still dysphoric, right? And I'm, <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean you have to go down that road. Um, but five had desisted. Um, and so then in the persistence group, the ones that were still dysphoric, um, both the boys and the girls, nearly all boys and girls were homosexual. In the desistance group, half of boys and all of girls were heterosexual. So people, people are kind of like quoting the abstract of the study without reading the whole study, I think. And um, so okay. I just want to put it out there that a significant portion of girls who are gender dysphoric um, as children, who these days are surely being put on puberty blockers and then sterilized, who are going to be coming out of this maybe in 10 years with um, complex medical needs and horrific trauma, are actually heterosexual. And so thinking that the lesbian community um, uh, should be responsible for then, you know, taking them in, um, it, it, that's, you know, not really um, necessarily going to work out. And the lesbians don't seem to really want that um, either. Um, from, and I don't want to, you know, paint all lesbians with the same brush, but I was kind of sad to see that when some um, straight women who were like pundits or whatever were posting things or, or, or publishing things saying, you know, I was a tomboy, and if I had been a little girl today, I would have been, um, you know, put on puberty blockers. And then some lesbians were reacting to that negatively, like, how dare these straight women, you know, kind of try to co-opt, you know, uh, whatever. But actually, they need to shut the fuck up, because there's a lot of little girls who uh, would grow up to be straight women who are now, um, you know, being put on the transgender train and um, uh, I don't know um, exactly what to do about that, but I really feel like there needs to be um, some sort of a neutral place to get support that isn't tied to some other pre-existing community, because this is a new problem, and there's going to be a mm -hmm. whole lot of young people who are going to be um, facing the aftermath um, in the future. And um, I actually want to start like a support a support group and um i'm not exactly sure yet how i'm going to be doing that but um mm -hmm. i just wanted to say that um you know as a straight um detransitioner so great mm -hmm. anyway thank you for having me on the show and um any minute thank now walter is going to be back and i'm going to have to be okay. back in mommy mode okay. so um do you have any final things to say I just thank you, thank you. We'll we'll pick this up again at some point because I felt like I only got like a quarter of your story, and I well, probably just like a one percent, but I would like to hear more.
Yeah, no, I, I would like to talk more. I mean, we can do it again. Um, sure, let's see. What else did I want to talk about? God, well, there's so much stuff. I'm yeah. also hopefully going to be doing an interview with Helena soon, but I don't want to, like, um, you know, put her on, you know, under pressure. So we'll see when that happens. Um, and then at some point again with you. And, okay. Um, yeah, okay, so. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, enjoy your Austrian night. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, I will. I will. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Okay. Bye.